This episode of the Sunday Salon is sponsored by Number Three London Dry Gin, the only gin to have ever been voted world's best gin four times. Containing just six botanicals, it brings together the perfect refreshing balance of juniper, citrus and spice, ideal for the ultimate dry martini, or, my favourite, a gin and tonic. Distilled in Holland, the home of gin, it took them two years to create their masterpiece, working with master distillers, top mixologists and Dr David Cluton, the only man to hold a PhD in gin. The perfect addition to any drinks trolley, number three is available to purchase at selected stores nationwide, including Waitrose and Berry Brothers and Rudd, for £35. Discover gin just as it should be. Hello and welcome to The Sunday Salon, a podcast celebrating brilliant books and the women who write them. My name is Alice Azania Jarvis, and each week I chat to an inspiring female author about her work, her career, how she writes, what she reads, and everything in between. I'm interested in the stories behind the stories, and the joy that books can bring, no matter what genre or style. My guest this week is Eleanor Morgan, whose second book, Hormonal, A Conversation About Women's Bodies, Mental Health, and Why We Need to Be Heard, came out this year. It's brilliant and beautifully written, combining Eleanor's own experience with detailed research and interviews, a similar approach to the one taken in her first book, Anxiety for Beginners, A Personal Investigation. Eleanor is also a successful journalist who has written for The Guardian, The Times, Vogue, The New York Times and more. And she used to be my editor. Back when I was a freelance writer, she'd commission me to write for her at Vice's food site, Munchies. So I'm really thrilled to have her on. So, Eleanor, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you very much. Let's start with Hormonal. How would you describe it and what made you write it? I wanted to write a book that I think I've always wanted to read Mm. um, through my sort of latter teen years, my 20s, my 30s, now in my mid-30s. I think I've always wanted to read a book that brings together kind of science, psychology, first person testimony um, of women's stories Mm. Um, and I think that it's if I can I mean there's a there's a lot in there um, and it's quite sprawling so you know it was quite a task to bring it all into a narrative Mm. but I think if I was to condense what it was I would say that it's a kind of exploration of everything that happens to women from when we start our periods up Mm. until we have the menopause and including both those things Mm. and everything that happens to our bodies and all of the kind of, all of the factors that influence our experience of our bodies because biology is only part of the picture. And when I started really delving into the history of how women's bodies have been treated, viewed, you know, throughout history, you start to get a real sense that um, society informs our private experiences as much as our biology does. So I think with women over the course of our reproductive lives, there is this massive interplay of things that are going on. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the kind of main thrust, if it could be condensed to anything, is that biology isn't everything. Mm, mm. It's it's interesting you saying biology isn't everything because one of the kind of tensions in the book that you you explore is the idea that you know if we acknowledge that our hormones can affect our behaviour or our mood 
then we're playing into those kind of mm. slightly sexist old tropes of the mm. sort of moody woman or even the hysterical woman. I mean, that's, yes. that's another trope that you look at. Can you tell me about that? And were you nervous tackling this subject for that reason? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think nervousness about tapping into and really accepting and exploring the inherent femaleness of all of this has been a personal and professional now in this context there's been a massive tension Mm. that all the time it's kind of you know as you were saying we've kind of fought for so long to rid ourselves of that kind of hysterical chocolate hogging kind of Mm. you know governed by the moon type Mm. mystical stuff um so i think yeah there is a kind of i've all i always had less so since writing this but i've always had this kind of does it make me less of a feminist to admit that i really struggle with my cycle Mm. sometimes that i get really bad pms Mm. but then over time you sort of realize the conditioning that makes you you know, the the meaning that you attach to those things, it starts to um, unravel a bit. But yeah, absolutely. There was nervousness and it wasn't an easy task to get the book published. Mm. There was a, you know, it went round a few publishers as as books do and people were really scared of it. Mm. People didn't want to publish a book that was, you know, dealing very frankly as was in my proposal period blood and Mm. um the kind of messy reality of Mm. women's bodies but that is our reality from you know from when we're teenagers to when our periods stop you know everything in between childbirth breastfeeding periods any of the kind of reproductive system conditions that we can get you know we are it it is i think female animalness really is one of the last taboos Mm. So yes, there was kind of, you know, I saw some of the emails that were circulating around the time of the book sort of going out and being people making offers or not making offers. And there was a real nervousness. Mm. And on my part, you know, putting out a book and using my own experiences as part of it. Mm. Of course, it comes with a whole, like, how are people going to see me? Yeah, is it going to make me less credible? Is it going to make me seen as kind of inherently flighty, you know that all of those classic tropes Mm. you mentioned there the drawing on your personal experience and your nervousness of that Mm. I mean it is very personal in in many ways as was your first book anxiety for beginners Mm. how do you steal yourself when writing writing the personal elements of those books and how do you decide what to hold back and and what to put out there good question um I don't really, I didn't really approach it, certainly hormonal, I didn't approach with a very clear set of ideas about how much personal stuff I wanted to put in there. Mm. Um, As I was putting all the research together and, you know, it was like a year's worth of kind of looking at literature, talking to people, you know, it was a big old reporting job, that Mm. one. Um, I sort of, along the way, thought, oh, yes, that applies to me, that applies to me. Mm. And I thought I just couldn't write a book about this stuff and not put myself into it because my experience informed my desire to want to write it. Mm. And 
But in terms of sealing yourself, you kind of, it is a leap of faith, I think. Mm. And there is there are times where I think with my first book, which as you say, was incredibly personal. Mm. In hindsight, would I have written so personally? I don't know. But then I also know that my anxiety, I feel, you know, I can largely manage it reasonably well mm. these days. But in really sort of desperate, bleak moments, it's been people's first person really open, honest, mm. balls-to-the-wall stuff that has really touched me and really moved me and made me feel less alone and more hopeful and all the rest of it. So you sort of... It is a leap of faith, but you sort of have to trust in what you know and what you've experienced yourself. But it's not easy. You know, it doesn't... There are days where I think, God, there are two books out there with you know masses of personal stuff about my life in there and it's a I don't I don't know how I'll ever quantify it properly Mm. and once you put it out there I think you kind of have to surrender the Mm. control Mm. because it's people you know people can do with the information what they want but yeah it's not it's not a natural thing to Mm. be doing Mm. whatever natural means Mm. but yeah, it's strange. It's a strange phenomenon that people, you know, I'm not, I'm no one special. You know, I feel like I can tell a story well and bring information together well, but I'm just a person that's mm. had, you know, kind of variants on quite common experiences. And it is weird mm. that it's out there. And when I see it in bookshops, I think, bloody hell, someone's going to pick that up and it's going to read about my periods. Mm. But I sort of along the way of writing the book and through the editing process I think I sort of bludgeoned all the the kind of ickiness was bludgeoned out of me Mm. Mm. it's weird just rewinding a bit to your first book Anxiety Mm. for Beginners you had your first panic attack when you were 17 I think in your teens but you kept it secret for a very long time you didn't tell many people so what was the tipping point to publishing it in a book well you're right it happened when I was 17 in sixth form and it was after I had recovered but not quite recovered from an awful experience my appendix burst Mm. and I really did nearly die and it was a real my home life was very difficult at the time so it was a kind of it was a perfect storm for a sensitive young person to kind of develop Mm. this new layer of sensitivity Mm. um but I had no idea what was happening um and I started to develop a bit more idea but the shame and the kind of fear attached to really looking at it kept me you know, in this strange purgatory for a really long time, most of my 20s. And then it caught up with me pretty spectacularly and I I had to deal with it. Um, But in terms of writing the book, I was working at Vice. I was senior editor at Vice and I'd put in, put in, it'd be good if I could talk. Mm. Um, I'd put together uh, a Vice guide to mental health and it was various articles about various aspects of mental health in Britain at Mm. the time, I think it was 2016. And I wrote a very open, honest article about my experiences with anxiety. And it went, you know, like it was one of the most read articles that Vice had ever had. Mm. Um, And then a literary agent got in touch with me Mm. 
and said, would you think about writing a book? And my initial reaction was, absolutely not. No. And then I thought about it more and he was very kind and kind of, you know, talked about the kind of impact that it could have. And then we ended up meeting various publishers and it happened really quickly. Mm. Um, And I had a deal, a very good deal, you know, within a couple of weeks Mm. after putting together a proposal. But that whole experience of the first book kind of spoiled it a bit for me because it's not the usual way things happen. You know, lots of money, incredibly kind, brilliant publishers. Mm. Yeah, the whole thing still to me is bizarre Mm. that I wrote that. And afterwards you began training as a psychologist. Yeah. Why? It's something I'd thought about, I'd been thinking about for years, retraining as a therapist of some sort. But I've always loved science. I had a place at medical school when I was Mm. in sixth form and gave it up because, I mean, I can think of various reasons. The the most honest answer is that I didn't think I could handle it with this anxiety. So I think it's the kind of halfway point between what I always wanted to do, which was be a doctor. Mm. I mean, I wanted to be a surgeon, but that's that's not going to happen now, I don't think. So it's that kind of, you know, I love evidence I love science I love you know kind of scientific study and psychology is the kind of scientific study of the mind the Mm. subjective mind and I'd the nuts and bolts of it is that I had made enough money from the advance on that first book to pay to do a master's Mm. otherwise there is no way absolutely no way I would have been able to do it Mm. and it felt at the end of researching that first book, and I did speak to loads and loads of people from different walks of life about their experiences and what interventions had worked at different times, what they felt like they'd been lacking on their journey. And it sort of just became unavoidable. I thought, I have to do this. So doing the masters was the first step and it was fantastic. It was so brilliant going back to university. How did it change how you saw your own mind? studying it in an academic way like like that it's a good question quite a lot actually I think I mean it's so difficult to use the word objective in psychology you Mm. can't really but when you are a student of psychology and you're looking at the history of how people have studied the mind what they've learned you realize how imprecise a lot of it is Mm. but the thing that I really realized more than anything while doing the masters and subsequently in the the supervised work that I've been doing and continue to do is how clear it became to me so quickly how adaptable our minds are mm. and our brains and how we can recover from the most traumatic things and still live you know a, a version of the life that we want to live mm. and it gave me hope i think you know i've since my I suppose my mid to late twenties where I really, you know, I started really doing proper therapy and really looking at this, you know, this sort of mess that I felt my body was in Mm. because of anxiety. And I feel sort of on the other side of that now, Mm. but it's still, you know, it's still an aspect of my life for sure. But I know my triggers and I know that it's gonna pass. That's the kind of the most fundamental thing that I learnt along the way, you know, whether you're talking about 
neurobiology, you know, kind of neurons connect to, you know, how brain messages travel to, you know, just how we study human beings. The thing you learn over and over again is how changeable we are. Mm-hmm. And when you apply that to mental health and the idea that when you're feeling terrible, it's, it's going to last forever. But the thing you learn is actually it never, ever does. Mm. So I think that's one of the key things. Mm. And yeah, I sort of get more hopeful as time goes on. Mm. We're really capable of changing. One of the things that comes up in, in both books, I know that when you first went to your GP about your anxiety, you said, well, you look well. Yeah. And <laughs> you revisit it in hormonal as well, this idea of um, women's pain being mm. historically underexamined, dismissed. I know that when you went to gynecologists about your PMS, mm. they were mostly male. Can you tell me a little bit about that and about what you learnt while looking into that? Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's once you start, if you start with your own experience, if I start with my own for this, for the sake of this discussion, it's what you start with your private experience and mine is that I have felt dismissed invariably by men, by male doctors, and that I haven't been taken seriously, that my pain hasn't been taken seriously. And then you start to pan out, and as I did in this book, you start looking into just the extent of that and the kind of tendrils of it through the ways in which we actually understand female pain, you know, women's pain, whatever you want to say. Um, And you start looking at the fact that in medical research, the women are, you know, systemically underrepresented in medical research and that's something that Caroline Criado Perez Mm. really goes into in her but there's some crossover in our research which is only Mm. a good thing to me the medical establishment is you know there are some fantastic doctors and really sort of progressive gynecologists male and female out there but there is this kind of inherent thing in our society you know regardless of what field we're talking, but if we're talking medicine, where a woman who says she's in pain and makes a fuss about it, there is this sort of, there is this sort of inherent bristling of, you know, oh, stop making a fuss, you know, you'll be okay, it happens to every woman. Mm. Um, And the more I started looking into that, you know, the amount of women I spoke to who gave a version of that. Mm. Yeah, it, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. But there is, you know, there is proper evidence out there for the fact that, you know, in terms of um, women presenting with cardiac symptoms, mm. that women are less likely to have, you know, to be diagnosed as having a heart attack because it presents differently in our bodies to men. Mm. But if you are working from a male default, then you will miss so much Mm. Um, but I think I couldn't have comprehended when I began writing this book actually just how much that would unfold Mm. and how you can just you can trace it back through time Mm. right to when you know in the 18th century when medicine sort of started to look you know a little bit like it does now in terms Mm. of um how we understood the body and how we treated the body. I mean, it's very different, but 
you know, right from the very beginning, women have been treated as this kind of other, um, this other entity. And when we make noise about how we feel, you know, people don't like it. Mm. I think it is getting better. I think the more... I think the more this conversation, you know, all of the books about mm. vaginal health and anything sort of gynae related and Caroline's book, I think there is a kind of movement led by women, led mm. by quote unquote real women who are changing the conversation, you know, as in real time. Mm. And I think it really is, it really is happening. You know, I think even in the space of like the last couple of years, mm. I think the taboo is sort of dissolving a little bit. Um, but then if you talk to a woman in the middle of rural England hmm. about her experience of going to a gynaecologist, what would that be, you know? Hmm. Another element of the book looks at the fact that this it, there's been this historic under-examination of these things results in ignorance which then results in sort of anxiety that uh, private companies can exploit. You talk about uh, sort of pseudo conditions such as adrenal fatigue. Mm. Um, you talk about the fertility MOT mm. industry. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I'm working on a, an investigation into that at the moment. Mm. Um, Again, it, it is astonishing how women's anxieties about their bodies, particularly fertility. Fertility seems to be the area where there is so much money to be made mm. in giving hope as to, you know, conceiving in the future, future or with things like egg freezing, you know, sort of buying yourself time. Mm. But actually that whole world relies on I mean the the science of IVF is incredible you know it's one of the areas of medicine that's just you know it's like sci-fi but real it's incredible mm. um but you know there are there are swathes of women who will go to a kind of hormone clinic on Harley Street let's you know if we're using London as an example who might be told we will give you this fertility MOT and look at your you know various hormone levels in the blood which will give us a picture of how fertile you are now they might offer you something like egg freezing but actually there isn't the data on like the success rate of something like egg freezing mm. which seems to be marketed towards women sort of in their mid to late 30s as far mm. as I can tell there isn't, there really isn't compelling data about using those eggs later on. Mm. So I think, I think there is a lot of dealing in false hope mm. in that sector. And I think in the private sector, there is such, and, and I mean, this is kind of on my mind presently because of this thing that I'm working on. Um, it, it, it needs far, far better regulating mm. because there's so much going on in terms of like, so you mentioned adrenal fatigue. Mm. You hear things like sluggish liver mm. and candida and 
all of these quote-unquote conditions that have absolutely no evidence base Mm. for being real other than anecdotal Mm. or they were coined like adrenal fatigue was coined by a doctor I think in the 80s and actually to me you know if we want to make broad strokes about that stuff which is difficult and risky but to me increasingly as I go down this road it all points to stress and the impact of stress Mm. on the body and I think we need to do some really big reframing on the sort of seriousness we apply to the word stress because it sort of seems throwaway Mm. but what we know now about the kind of impact of trauma whatever that is on the body it it can be huge Mm. and lifelong and I you know I've realized that actually so much of the physical stuff that I experience my perception of my own pain my you know all of the physical stuff I've had with anxiety all of that kind of relates to traumatic experiences mm. that I've had and I think there are there is so much money to be made invariably from women mm. so this this piece that I'm working on I'm looking at all of this stuff that we're talking about mm. and where the private sector offers this kind of lure of precision in healthcare and where women sort of do test after test after test of trying to find out exactly what's wrong with them, mm. something to explain why they're chronically tired, why they have gut issues mm. and things like hormonal imbalance. But actually all of that testing doesn't really implicate or change the outcomes or mm. what you would do to make yourself feel better. Mm. You might be prescribed hundreds of pounds worth of probiotics or Mm. whatever but I really think more and more I think that whole world of alternative medicine and wellness practitioners and some private doctors who kind of you know broke from the NHS and are doing their own thing the lack of regulation and what people are paying and what they're actually getting I think it's such I think it's one of the biggest scams Mm. there is and invariably it is women Mm. it's always women Mm. going through these paths you had your eggs frozen yeah and what was your experience like that was after your appendix yeah I mean not immediately afterwards but as a result of Mm. the appendix Mm. bursting yeah so my appendix bursting so it was I had peritonitis which is when your bowel explodes basically Mm. and you're you fill with pus and oh. all sorts. Yeah, it's it's revolting. Okay. But the effect of that afterwards, it's kind of, your body can't really go through something like that and not have some ramifications. Mm. Um, so basically I'm full of scar tissue. Mm. My organs stick to each other, like my bowel sticks to my womb mm. and they've gone in a couple of times to kind of separate it. But what they found on one of those they call it adhesiolysis, where they go in and kind of break down the adhesions. They saw that my fallopian tubes were basically stuck mm. down and said, this will implicate your fertility. And they did a dye test where they, they inject dye into the womb and see if it comes out mm. the tubes. And it didn't. So they said, in order to conceive, if you ever wanted to conceive, you would have to do IVF. But because we found this, you know, this organic abnormality we can offer you egg freezing or embryo freezing Mm. and I actually did embryo freezing Mm. I bought donor sperm Mm. and 
I have five embryos at Homerton Hospital just mm. in the freezer. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, that's going to be if I want to have children, a child, and I'd still, I still don't really know at this mm. point. That's, you know, that's my option. But the, the experience, it's tough. It's really tough. And I think, I think terms like egg freezing, the language around it sort of implies that it's this, you know, this thing you sort of whip in and out, they whip you in and out and do it. But it's really, it's really not like that. Doing egg freezing is, you do IVF, except they don't transfer the embryo at the end. So you have to mm. take these quite heavy duty drugs that stimulate your ovaries mm. and that can have all sorts of different effects some women seem to tolerate it reasonably well mm. i haven't met a single woman who hasn't felt shit in some way mm. but the experience you know i don't i don't feel like i had enough information about how unwell i might feel mm. um they were very good at kind of hand holding in a medical sense but i've i found i found it quite traumatic Mm. It, it felt like my body was being hijacked for however long it was, a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, and then the egg collection itself is painful. You know, it's, it's surgery. Mm. And then I developed a complication after that, which was like hyperstimulation of the ovaries. So they just went absolutely enormous. Mm. And my belly went massive and I had to be in hospital for a couple of days. It's like a basically um, monitor and see that I didn't explode again mm. but yeah I, th I think there's you don't want to scaremonger because not every woman will have that experience mm. but some might mm. and I think we have to be so careful about how we talk about this stuff and very realistic because mm. I think too often it's sort of bandied about as this accessible quick thing you can do but you have to put your body through the mill to mm. do it when you had this idea for hormonal and you were, it was being passed around and it wasn't the sure thing that it was mm. going to get published, how did you, first of all, was it the proposal or was it the whole, the whole book? The proposal. The proposal. How did you kind of hold your nerve? How did you persevere? <laughs> I didn't really. I was very nervous about it, mm. really nervous. I thought, and it made me angry actually, the more, the more it went on, and it really, it took ages to mm. get a publisher. And in the end, Virago published it, which I was delighted about. Um, but it made me angry, you know, seeing some of the emails that I got about it going into sales meetings and people just being like, it's too, it's too angry. It's too sort of, too much of a polemic. It's too, mm. I, I started to feel really cross. And for me, feeling angry is really close to anxiety. Mm. And there was a point where, we were, I say we, my agent and I were pretty sure it wasn't going to sell. Mm. And at that point I was like, well, phew, there's nothing I can do. You know, maybe I can turn it into a long read or whatever. But I think it's so, it's such an, again, it's such an alien thing, publishing, putting a book out there, mm. having an agent kind of sell, try and sell a book for you. It, it's so alien. It's a, it's a huge privilege, of course. In terms of holding my nerve, oh, I remember I was going to have more surgery just before I got the deal. So I just dealt with it by being knocked unconscious. It's <laughs> <laughs> quite a good tactic. Yeah. Did you feel vindicated then when it came out and was well reviewed? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't have anticipated how, how well people would Respond. receive it because 
you know, there's that time from when you file your draft and you do your edit and they do the legal edit and all of it. And then you sort of, you surrender this massive thing that you've done. And then it's just sort of out there in the ether. And you sort of, lo- I, beca- I felt quite disconnected from it. It was all, mm. all of the themes and all of the research was still sort of floating around my mind. But yeah, I mean, I was delighted when people started to really receive it well. Um, and, uh, you know, occasionally I get that mad thrill of seeing someone reading it on the tube. Mm, mm. Or I saw someone buying it in foils. And it's just, I don't think it will ever, ever, I hope it never feels normal. Mm. I hope it always feels utterly bizarre and strange. Mm. But I think, you know, I've been a journalist for quite a while now, 13 years, and I'm used to things that I write being out there in the world. But you can't, I mean, now with Twitter, people interact with you much more. Mm. Usually, you know, it's usually men with some hole to pick in what you've done Mm. (laughs) but you don't you know a book is very different you know it's kind of 65,000 words of research and you putting your voice to all of this big stuff and also doing people's stories justice Mm. and you know it was so it was so important to me for the research to be very tight and Mm. for the you know there's a lot of information in there Mm. there's a lot of footnotes there's a lot of science you know that I felt it was so important to me for it to be a accessible b um easy to follow and reliable Mm. and that takes a lot of work Mm. it took a lot of work so yeah in that sense I was delighted when you say it took a lot of work what kind of uh, what kind of writer are you how does it did you do all your research at the start and then sort of write at the end? I mean, what, what, how did you divide your time? I had lots of designs at the beginning of the whole thing once I'd got the deal of being incredibly organized and having a kind of system of working. Um, but it never really works like that. I think in my journalistic career, I've realized <laughs> over time that I need a kind of metaphorical gun to my head Mm. in order to work well. And I think I do my best work when there is pressure. So I had to ask my publisher for kind of these arbitrary deadlines. Mm. Otherwise, I don't think, you know, I don't think I could have done it in the time that I did. Um, But essentially, I did most of the research before writing. Mm. But then you start writing and then you think, oh, that reminds me of X, Y and Z. And then you kind of take yourself on a different tangent. But the kind of the key interviews, you know, kind of speaking to various psychologists, scientists, gynecologists, whatever, case studies that I did most of in the kind of first phase. Mm. But then as you sort of put your reporting together and you synthesize all your information, models open all the time mm. the, the key thing I think writing non-fiction and I'm hopefully fingers crossed and touch wood about to do a third mm. I hope I can't say anything because it hasn't happened yet I guess the thing that I feel 
writing nonfiction, mm. and particularly when you're dealing with sensitive human subjects, which I have in both of these books, I feel an incredible sense of responsibility to report well and to research as thoroughly as mm. I possibly can until I've exhausted, you know, what I feel are the kind of relevant areas of inquiry. But the, I think the key thing when writing nonfiction is knowing when to stop. Mm. It's knowing when to kind of close the door on a particular mm. avenue of thought or when to stop interviewing people. Mm. Um, because, you know, I could have written double the length of this, mm. of, of hormonal, but you also want people to read it and it has to be entertaining because you know it can the science stuff I, I love reading scientific stuff but it can get quite dry mm. so yeah knowing when to stop is is a hard line I'm gonna let you go soon because uh, we're running out of time but mm -hmm. before I do just a couple of final things um you mentioned you may be working on another book mm. um and you've obviously been pretty busy promoting hormonal this mm. year have you had the chance to think about what else you would like to do do you see your focus as being in books would you ever move into different media what do you mean well documentaries I suppose. oh yeah yeah i'd be open to it i've had various meetings and you know tv is a very slow world things mm. People have all sorts of brilliant ideas and it can take a long time for mm. things to materialise. But yeah, I would be open to it. But the more, you know, I'm hoping to start the doctoral training part of my mm. psychology journey next year. And that will be very intensive, full-time. You know, it's essentially a full-time job. Um, and I think once I'm sort of in that mindset, I can't imagine losing that focus on the clinical mm. work mm. but while I sort of have a leg in both worlds yeah I would totally be open to it mm. and my final question which I ask everyone is uh, if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice what would it be gosh um listen to your body mm. and by that I mean you know, my anxiety manifested so physically and I've realized, you know, it's kind of schlocky and a bit fridge magnet philosophy that it sounds, but our pain, our kind of physical pain often has a message. And for me, I left it so long mm. to really let my, you know, to kind of be vulnerable with, not just a kind of, not just a therapist, but people around me, mm. you know, romantic relationships, friendships, my family, you know, it took so long to break down all of that kind of internal shame and stigma. Mm. But when you do that, the kind of the world, you see things so much, you know, you see things so differently and you see other people's their own version of it you know everyone has their version of mm. shame and something that they're hanging on to but yeah I think it would be you know stop hiding from yourself mm. 
Oh, that's great advice. Um, Eleanor, thank you so much. Thank it's you been so such much. such a joy to yeah, talk really to you. Has. And to everyone listening, Hormonal is out now. Do buy it. I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a really riveting read. So that's it from me. Thank you so much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Zania. And more importantly, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate or review it. It really helps other people find it and its position in the charts. So until next week... Thank you very much and goodbye.